a lot of people that speak a language other than English um, that are in residential care facilities are sometimes the only person in that residential facility that speaks a language other than English or there might be another person. So they're a minority. Could you imagine being the only person in a residential care facility that speaks a language other than English and there's no language support for you or cultural supports in place that leads to severe and significant social isolation that can lead to very serious health and well-being effects on the person. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Ash Denif. I'm your host. And we've got an interesting conversation today about an often overlooked subject in aged care, cultural diversity. I'm joined by two guests from the Centre for Cultural Diversity in Aging, Lisa Trebuzio and Nikki Rittinghausen. And as you can tell, I have quite a lot of fun pronouncing their names. A lot of this conversation focuses on how essential interpreting, translating and language appropriate resources are for linguistically diverse older adults, both in home care and residential care. You'll hear Lisa share some of the challenges her grandparents faced in living and aging in Australia with English as a second language. And this really resonated with me and the experiences that my Dutch family have had here too. With a third of seniors coming from non-English speaking backgrounds, isolation, exclusion and miscommunication due to language are consistent obstacles to overcome when delivering care. Nikki and Lisa also share several resources that providers and staff can access to help make communication better and provide more supportive care for people in their language. If you've been listening to the podcast and wondering what's next for us, we're just getting ready for our third season starting in 2022. It still feels weird to say that year. And if there's a topic or guest you'd love to hear us explore or talk to on the show, please reach out. You can contact us at acepodcast at silveradventures.com.au. That's all for me today, so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lisa Trebuzio and Nikki Rittinghausen. Great. Well, Lisa and Nikki, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having us, Ash. Thank you very much, Ash. It's a pleasure to be on board. Yeah, it's great to have you guys with us. And uh, for a conversation about culture and cultural diversity, we have quite a, a culturally diverse group here. We've got a Tribuzio, a Rittinghausen, and a Denif. These are three quite culturally interesting names, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And um, thank you for the right pronunciation of my surname, oh, which is right? often um, mispronounced in the Australian context. What do you normally get? <laughs> Um, I, I get Tribbiano because people watch a lot of Friends. There's no N in there. <laughs> they just don't even read it. Yeah, I get a lot of different things. <laughs> Nikki, do you get uh, strange pronunciations too? Yeah, I think people, it's not a very easy name to pronounce. My name is a long name and I actually have four first names. I actually don't mention them because it gets too complex. But I was just wondering the names of us. Uh, we, I think we're having, you know, three European countries in there. So we have Holland, we have Italy and Germany. So, yeah, we are... A, a part of the good representation of a part of Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I understand that you've both kind of had a long and winding journey to end up in aged care. And 
to end up the work that you're doing at the moment. Before we, we touch on what, you, what you're doing at this time, can you give us a bit of your background and how you arrived in aged care? Maybe, Lisa, you can start. Yeah, thanks, Ash. Um, I guess I'll do a bit of an overview of my career. So it's been 20 years as a social worker working in the multicultural sector, uh, working directly with people, communities, families, um, and looking at issues relating to racism and discrimination. So over the last five years, I've transitioned into um, diversity advisor kind of roles, looking at systemic change. Um, and I worked in disability and aged care and um, worked at the NDIA as well as the um, Inclusive Strategies team, looking at um, policies and procedures around inclusive practice for people living with disability. And then from there, now I've transitioned into aged care and it's a really um, soft spot for me because I've witnessed my grandparents um, and their struggle in the Australian community, um, having English as an additional language um, and really trying to navigate their way through the Australian community and get their rights met. And so I feel it in my heart. And often my grandfather comes to me when I'm in meetings, like I get images of him come through and um, he was in a residential care facility. And um, I feel that the work that I do is often guided by my heritage. Fantastic. A personal connection there. What about you, Nikki? Actually, maybe I start with my grandmother just at uh, 100 years, returned 100 recent, very recently. And um, I always enjoyed working with seniors and older people. And maybe it comes from my grandmother because we have a very fond relationship. I actually, I started off doing international studies and um, I came through the multicultural rail, if you wish, because I did bachelor's thesis on the origins of multicultural policy in Australia. And then after my master, I, I started working at the ECCV, Ethnic Communist Council of Victoria, in multicultural ageing. So it was a crossroads of ageing and, and multiculturalism. And that was my role as an aged care policy officer and also worked in policy roles in projects and sectoral development. And I really enjoyed that cross-section between multiculturalism and aged care. And I've been since then since there and uh, I still really enjoy it. I think it's a really an interest, interesting field and with so many opportunities and now I have been working at the centre with Lisa since August so yeah. Yeah fantastic it sounds like you've both come in from opposite sides there Nikki you're coming from policy and management and Lisa coming from social work and working with individuals. To that Lisa you mentioned before your parents and your grandparents experience in an assimilationist sort of society what was that like for them? Where do I even begin? Um, my grandparents migrated to Australia during the post-World War II migration program that Australia has adopted in, in relation to um, for labour reasons. And so my grandparents came here and they settled in the northern region of Melbourne, mm. as a lot of Italians did at the time, and they did the best they could to um, raise families and to contribute to the Australian community. They worked very hard and they didn't have English language proficiency. Um, and so I'm really inspired by their resilience to be able to raise families and um, get employment and to love each other and their grandchildren. However, as a little girl, the experience that I had witnessing my grandfather in a residential care facility was something that I never want to see again mm. um, for any other older person to go through. The language barrier, the lack of cultural sensitivity, the loss of identity. And so the work that we do is a lot about dignity, um, integrity, 
and ensuring that people can maintain their culture, their spirituality, and um, be the best versions of themselves and have positive ageing experiences. And unfortunately, I think that the aged care system has a long way to go. There's some great examples, good examples out there and good practices. However, because of the aged care, you know, inquiry into aged care through the Royal Commission, um, we have seen um, massive issues in the aged care system in relation to cultural sensitivity. And just with all older people that enter into residential care or even home care or CHSP programs, for example, community home support programs, um, that there's a lot of more resources that are needed and a lot more support. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for outlining what your family has been through there. And I guess it it raises this balance between integrating into a new society but still holding on to culturally important things and maintaining identity. I, I imagine the work that you're both doing at the Centre for Cultural Diversity and Ageing is trading that line a lot. How do you balance that? Say you're supporting a, a family or you're encouraging a community how can you balance those two aspects? Yeah, I think it's important that we don't come from the perspective, you know, that we are like criticizing organizations and saying, you know, you're you're not able to do this because, you know, the matter of the fact is that we have one third of seniors from non-English speaking or culturally linguistically diverse background. So it's not about necessarily criticizing providers because, you know, as you said before, there's a lot more work to do to ensure that, you know, providers deliver culturally inclusive care. It's more about, you know, building the capacity of them, helping them, being that coach, being that trainer or, you know, teaching them how to do it because they don't have either resource, they don't know how to do it. So it's really, um, you know, being that supporting or person of giving that advice and, you know, just to what Lisa said before, I think I also get it a lot that people ask me why, you know, there's so many people who don't speak English. They have been here for a long time. And that's really about explaining a lot of people that maybe they have migrated in Australia, but they never really had the opportunity to actually learn English. You know, they maybe they were at home or they were in factories where everybody was speaking, you know, either basic English or sort of a mix of, you know, where there were lots of migrants. So it's really, and also put yourself in that shoe. If you were, let's say, in China, you know, and you had to navigate the HK system as a senior, how would it be for you? So I think it's important to talk to people and say, you know, it's, it is a challenge, you know, if you don't speak the language. And we always, when we are overseas, we always expect everyone to speak English, you know, obviously. But I think, you know, in Australia, we have such a diverse fabric of people. So it's really important to understand. And then there's also the thing of language reversion when people get older or have dementia. So I think it's important to just change that mindset, making people aware that a lot of people, they don't just speak English, even how they have lived in Australia for a long time. Mm. I'm wondering here, because we're talking a lot about language and not having English as a first language will be a barrier to accessing quality care for older adults. Are there other barriers as well that are worth noting? Thank you, Ash. If we unpack the idea of language services even further, so there are other things to talk about in relation to language barriers. So at the moment, we have an underutilisation of translating and interpreting services by the aged care sector. Often, people, um, the children are used as interpreters or family members. People are not understanding how to access interpreters. Sometimes we have a lack of interpreters in certain language groups, so some of the small and emerging languages. And sometimes people don't feel comfortable um, with a third party involved in a private and sensitive conversation. In addition, we have sometimes the way in which we engage multilingual workers and we don't often support them and um, credit them 
for the the language skills that they offer into the workplace. Um, so we need to have like language policies that support multilingual workers and their rights in the workplace. The aged care sector does not fund translations for government-funded aged care providers. Really? And that's become an issue. So aged care providers have to fund their own translations. Wow. In addition, um, interpreting services are for free um, for Australian government-funded aged care providers. However, they're not for free once an older person gets their home care package. Once they get a home care package, the older person has to use their own funding, their own resources to pay for an interpreter. This goes against the right to communicate, mm. which is under the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and, of course, the Universal Declaration on Cultural Diversity, that everyone has the right to express themselves in their preferred language. And there's a lot of advocates suggesting that interpreting should be um, subsidised across all of the consumer pathway within aged care, not just in the assessment process and not just in residential care facilities, for example. It should be once they get their package that if they would like to get um, personal care worker or if they need um, transport or if they need to link with a social support program, for example, that the interpreting there should also be subsidised. I just wanted to mention some of the... Um, issues in aged care in relation to language services? Yeah, I just want to add as well that, you know, aged care is something that's not necessarily that some cultures are not familiar with. For example, um, you know, many cultures, it's really the family who cares for the older people. So the, mm. having it as a system, as a, you know, that's not common in some cultures. And what Lisa was talking about was talking about for about new and emerging communities, also that in emerging communities of people who have recently arrived, more recently arrived to Australia, that they sometimes a little bit um, reluctant to take up service because either they're not culturally appropriate or they're a little bit afraid of, you know, of, of government authority because they have made not so good experience in their home countries. Mm. Just wanted to add that, you know, the, the importance of family and in some cultures that people would really prefer that it's that cares through family. But once people come to Australia and you know, their children work, the situation changes and they need aged care services. You know, that's really good to highlight there that if somebody's migrated and they've been seeking asylum in Australia or leaving a, a hostile sort of environment, their attitude towards receiving services from the government would be quite different to someone who's grown up in Australia. I imagine that there's a sort of an education piece and it needs to go on throughout multicultural communities to educate that it's safe, it's okay, this is something we do here, we can help you. How does that process happen? I guess um, in relation to older people knowing how to, to make a complaint, a compliment or a feedback to an aged care service, that there's a lot that needs to be done in that space around inclusive consumer feedback mechanisms. And the reason for that is because we have a very low rate of con um, consumer feedback to the Australian government systems like My Aged Care or even the Royal Commission from culturally and linguistically diverse and faith diverse um, older people due to a number of barriers, like you mentioned, Ash, which is fear of um, privacy being breached, fear of that they're, if they're on a temporary visa that their visa might be, you know, taken away from them, um, a history of discrimination and giving feedback to um, government bodies in the past um, and just general intimidation and, and also feeling, uh, um, experiencing discrimination in Australia. Mm. We need to mention that people have experienced discrimination in the Australian context and racism as well. And so all these factors are in place. And, of course, we've got health literacy, disability, um, English language barriers. Um, sometimes feedback is through a survey in written form. People can't, uh, sometimes are illiterate. 
Um, so there's a number of different factors. And in terms of raising awareness of people's rights and responsibilities, um, there are quite a few providers out there that are multicultural um, organisations and they have a lot of programs to help and empower older people to make a complaint to or feedback to the system. Mm-hmm. In saying that, the aged care um, budget that's just been announced and the roadmap to um, the future of aged care in the next five years suggests a more inclusive approach to um, consumer voice and consumer participation. So really watch the space there. This episode is sponsored by Ending Loneliness Together. I just felt a sadness inside. I've never spoken to anyone about feeling lonely. I've never spoken to my, my family. I think I always try to show I'm well, especially to the kids. They'd never imagine that I felt lonely. Over 5 million Australians are lonely. While we all feel lonely from time to time, longer periods of loneliness are damaging to our health and well-being. Ending Loneliness Together is a national Australian charity with the vision to halve chronic loneliness by 2030. We all have a role to play in ending loneliness. Consider making a donation, becoming a member, or sharing your story with others. Go to www.endingloneliness.com.au for more information. That would be my next question. Out of the the Royal Commission's final report and the the government's proposed five pillars plan, are we seeing that some of these challenges are being addressed? It's really hard to answer that um, because it's about the future and a vision for a new aged care system. So at the moment, we definitely have um, things like the Navigator program that has been introduced um, that was mentioned in the in the budget, especially as it relates to special needs groups. So culturally, linguistically and faith diverse older people um, situate themselves in the policy framework within the special needs group category under the Aged Care Act. Mm -hmm. So we know the government has put resources into um, aged care navigators that speak different languages and to handhold and help people access my aged care and aged care services. So that's great to see. Um, We are in consultation with um, lots of different set providers and, and, and the government around um, making a more inclusive system for in, in relation to governance. So there'll be a few governance um, bodies emerging in the, in the near future, and we're talking about how do we make it diversify the government structures. So that's really interesting as well. Other recommendations, we know that there's going to be an Aged Care Act or re- revised Aged Care Act, so we're not sure what that's going to look like, but there has been mention of diversity and inclusion being embedded throughout the Act as core business mm-hmm. rather than an add-on thing to do. Great. So lots of things on the horizon there that, that could contribute. Nikki, did you have something to add? No, I think uh, what I was going to say is, you know, in terms of what Lisa mentioned, the HK diversity framework and the HK action plans, you know, for example, for LGBTI and for culturally diversity diverse people, I think that's really, I think generally that we have that in Australia, I think that's a great achievement because I think it's unique in that sense that, you know, a country takes it really on and takes it serious, you know, that cultural diversity is inclusion is a big topic. So I think we are a step ahead in Australia. We have these, you know, diversity frameworks and we have these action plans and there used to be also a cold HK strategy in the past in HK. But on the other hand, because, you know, there's so many people from culturally linguistic diverse backgrounds, about a third, there's still much more work to do. And I think it's a little bit of a, underfunded sector because people often see it as not necessary but more sort of as a niche thing mm. culture inclusive case fast also about saying no it's 
needs to be part of you know day-to-day business and really including it into your governance structure and your service delivery and your organizational strategy and all that sort of thing. So yeah, I think it's great that we have that, but we think we, but there's much more work um, that needs to be done. And I don't know many other countries who have that. So I think in that sense, I think Australia is unique that it recognizes the different diverse groups that live in Australia. And um, at least we have something that we can, you know, work together towards. Great to highlight the, the work that's been done so far and that in Australia we do have a, a good start to these systems, but there is more work to do. I'm wondering, you compare Australia to countries like Malaysia where there are three dominant ethnicities or, or cultural groups, and in Australia it's much more fragmented. It would seem like in order to provide these services to all people equally, the work required is much greater how can you embed that in the framework without the resources blowing out and this becoming a project that's too hard to tackle, Nikki? I think if from the start, you know, and it's probably an ideal situation, the system would already cater for, for everyone. If there was technically equality and equity, we would be at a stage where we probably wouldn't um, require these strategies if people would sort of do it naturally, organically and automatically. But I think often it's that people... Some people don't know or don't see this as a necessity. Yeah. And it's also, you know, how about raising that awareness and talking to people, you know, telling stories like, you know, of, for example, Lisa's, you know, grandparents that people then relate to and can see why this is important that we are, do, you know, that we are doing work in the area. I don't know much about Malaysia, but I know from Singapore that they also have, you know, that's different makeup of different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And they're also now starting to get seniors from different ethnicities aging. They're also looking into how can we make the system, you know, more responsive for all different, you know, groups within Singapore and aged care system. So they're actually reaching out, coming to Australia, wanting to learn from countries like Australia with experience, you know, with a lot of migrant, the high migrant population to learn from Australia, how to, you know, cater for a very diverse makeup of society. So I think we are in a world where I think we still have to learn a lot. As Lisa said before, in an ideal world, we have, you know, human rights recognized and implemented and I hope we wouldn't need to fight so much. We would just see as a sort of inherent right for everyone to have the same treatment independent of my language, of my culture, Mm -hmm. of my heritage, you know, so Hopefully we'll progress, but I think on the other hand, it takes the time to have the conversation with people who don't see it as a sort of, a, as a priority to understand, Richard, why we believe it's important and, you know, raising that awareness and in a conversation, we learn from each other, you know. No, that's, that's great. I, I think we've touched on here how it, in the uh, governance sense and how in policy and and in terms of in, interacting with the public sector, this can work. If you focus on the residential care providers, for example, say that a new migrant comes in or somebody from a recently arrived group, say a Sudanese or Somalian older person comes into a facility who doesn't speak English, what resources are available to the care provider to assist this person through their care journey, Lisa? At the moment, the Australian government-funded aged care provider, residential care provider has access to interpreting for free. Mm-hmm. They have access to the Partners in Culturally Appropriate Care Alliance, the PCAC Alliance, to which the Centre for Cultural Diversity and Ageing is the Victorian provider, and there's a provider in each state and territory. Those organisations 
provide diversity coaching and support and resources, including access to multilingual resources, subject matter experts around diversity and inclusion, principles and organisational approaches to support diversity in their organisations. So they can ring the PCAC provider in their state and territory and get advice to support this particular older person. Mm-hmm. They can reach out to peak bodies, but also to, say, organisations that support African communities to get support. The other thing they have access to is the Community Visitors Program. At the moment, we know that the Community Visitors Program, which is a person that can go, a volunteer that can go into a residential care facility and speak to and help older people that are experiencing social isolation, Mm -hmm. um, that there are a range of different languages um, that the volunteers speak. So they could ring up and see if they speak Somali. They can get support to access Somali materials. Now, I'm not sure if there's a lot of, say, Somali news, newspapers out there or TV shows, but they'd have an obligation to ensure that this older person can express themselves freely within that setting. And if we look at the um, aged care workforce, over a third come from multilingual backgrounds, the workforce itself. So they might want to look at a targeted recruitment program to have Somali-speaking workers as well. And we think that is essential, in fact, a priority um, in terms of the right to communicate because you can't always call an interpreter if someone's thirsty or if someone's in pain in that moment. Mm. The other thing they have access to is the Centre for Cultural Diversity and Ageing's communication cards and aged care signage, which we have in 61 languages and one of them is Somali. So they could stick up the Somali signs at the, say, the bathroom area or the kitchen area and then they can print out the Somali communication cards, put them around their neck in a lanyard, for example, laminate them and and help the older person to communicate or even learn Somali themselves. Um, Some of the words in the communication cards are things just like, you know, um, relating to clothing, personal care, food, feelings at times as well. So and they can use those cards as well. It does sound like the best case scenario is when a residential facility might have a few residents from the same cultural background and then they can bring in more resources and they can slowly start to accommodate more of the people. But it sounds like it might be a challenge for the first people who arrive in the facility mm-hmm. that it's going to be a big adjustment period for the facility to get up to the point where they can provide supportive care for that individual in their language. That's right, Ash. And if you look at the statistics from 2019 report looking at cultural diversity in residential care, authored by the Centre for Cultural Diversity in Ageing, suggests that a lot of people that speak a language other than English um, that are in residential care facilities are sometimes the only person in that residential facility that speaks a language other than English, or there might be another person. So they're in minority. Could you imagine being the only person in a residential care facility that speaks a language other than English, and there's no language support for you or cultural supports in place Mm. that leads to severe and significant social isolation that can lead to very serious health and well-being effects on the person. We think that social isolation is is not related to health and well-being, but research has suggested otherwise. And sometimes people um, get very serious depression Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not able to communicate. And we need to see language services as an essential service, not as an addition. Even if there's one person in the residential care facility that has English as an additional languages, language, we need to put 
exactly the same resources into that person as to everyone else that speaks English as well, even though they are a minority. Mm. To return to my earlier question, which I sounds like I probably jumped the gun with a little bit, but this idea that languages are a focal point of inclusion and, of course, being able to speak in your own language, as you said, is a human right. Are there elements of cultural inclusion that go beyond the language? I think, you know, one important point is the food, culturally appropriate food. Then we were talking about spirituality and religion as well today. So the importance of, you know, culturally um, appropriate care also includes, you know, uh, that you can, you know, access, you know, your preferred priest or imam or, or rabbi, for example, in palliative care. Mm-hmm. So that also spans to palliative care that, you know, you have culturally responsive palliative care. It could be something around the HK assessment. How do you assess a person? So often, you know, there's, you know, different models, for example, in um, to detect dementia. And there's what's called RUDAS, which is a, a culturally appropriate dementia assessment tool. And also what we're talking before about having partnerships, for example, in the community visitor scheme. So people are visited in their facility and that they have a volunteer from their same cultural language background so that there are partnerships, you know, for example, with multicultural organizations that then there's a volunteer to visit people in residential age care. So I think it covers a number of things. Mm-hmm. So food, I think, is important too, because I have I remember an example where, you know, an Indian senior was in a residential age care facility, just as a little story, and the person didn't really like the food, what, what was in that facility. So the wife was then bringing, you know, food to the facility, which is an issue in itself, because you really didn't mm. eat that food and didn't really, you know, really like it. So that, you know, importance of having your own food that you are familiar with in the facility is also something that is important. And we try to feature best practice examples or good examples where, you know, organizations actually do that. There's a facility of Bolton Clark in West Med in Sydney, and um, we actually, you know, have co-designed their menu together with different communities and they have done, you know, different things on their menu. So I think, I think it's really important, you know, not just language, but, you know, religion, palliative care assessment, but also that, you know, organizations that they co-design their service, whatever their consumer makeup is. So if their consumer makeup is, from, let's say, from Arab-speaking community, maybe they prefer carers, so same-sex carers, for example, you know, mm-hmm. or that they would like to have halal meat. So it's really, you know, working with the consumer and seeing, you know, what that person wants. So we're actually going to launch a, um, a practice guide, an effective core design with um, consumers from culturally linguistically diverse backgrounds to help organizations you know, who want to work with their clients to be able to have approach where they really work with the consumer to, to deliver the service that they want. Absolutely. Guys, we're almost out of time and I really enjoyed this conversation and digging into this issue and lots of different aspects of it that I'd never thought of. Before we go, where can people find out more about your work and the Centre for Cultural Diversity and Ageing? Yeah, absolutely, Ash. Thanks for that question. And um, they can just visit our website at www.culturaldiversity.com.au. Our website is funded by the Department of Health. It's for a national audience, so it's actually a program itself. Fantastic. Well, Nikki, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Ash. Thank you, Ash. It's great talking to you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. 
If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver.com.au. See you next week.